Thanks very much, Nathan. Thank you for that. I'm just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen, whichever's most appropriate. And I'm going to read from Judges chapter 12, just continuing to look at the story of God's working through the, the men and women during the time of Judges. We've looked the last couple of times a little bit at the, the story of Jephthah, and we're going to continue that this morning. This is the last chapter, really, in his life. And we read in Judges 12, verse 1, The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, why did, you call, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house down over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle against the Ammonites. And though I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gideonites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Thank God again and ask him to make clear his will for our lives through his word. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank you for the teaching of your word. And again, sometimes we come across these passages in the Old Testament and they challenge us. But Lord, we pray that you'll give us understanding of your word and then you'll help us to see how that word can be applied to our lives and experience today. Speak to us now. In the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over 20 years now, it must be well over 20 years, I got back in touch with a, a side of my family. It's actually uh, my father's side of the family that due to a series of different, usually unfortunate circumstances, I've actually been out of touch with for almost 30 years. And what actually got me back in contact with them was in itself sad. It was the news that my oldest half-brother, 26 years older than me, was dying. So on a number of occasions, I travelled from Edinburgh, where I was living then, to the hospital in air to visit him. But you know, it was the strangest experience doing that, for I'd forgotten, maybe never realised clearly up to that point, how alike one another we were. In many ways, physically, we both take after our father, but also in temperament and in different ways, there was a much greater similarity between myself and my half-brother 
than there is with my own full brother. Now, there was a whole mixture of emotions going on for me at this time. It was sad, of course it was, to see him so ill. I was happy to see other family members that I thought I would perhaps never see him again, including my Aunt Martha, who as a little boy used to terrify me. But at the same time, there was also a funny side to this, to in a sense kind of seeing myself reflected in him because he was ill and he was grumpy, as I would be. But now and again, there was a wee flash of humour, the occasional nippy retort shone through, and I, I enjoyed that. And it was kind of funny to recognise that if I was in the same situation, that I would probably react in exactly the same kind of way. What was even funnier for me was seeing replicas of my skinny legs attached to somebody else's body. That was funny. But there was also, in a way, a, a scary side to all of this. For you see, in this, in a, in a kind of very personal and powerful way, I was brought again face to face with my own mortality. That in 10 years, maybe, 20 years from now, I will be where my brother was then, facing death. And while I want to say that as a Christian, I'm not afraid today as I once was at the prospect of death itself. I'm not, because why should I be? Because then I'm going to be with Jesus. Then I'm going to enjoy the fulfillment in Christ of all that I've counted most precious in this life. Yet if I'm going to be honest, I would have to say that the experience of dying is still something that causes me a bit of apprehension. It's the, the letting go that bothers me, not where I'm going. But taking all in all, what, what this episode in my life reminded me of is the old saying, you know, to see ourselves, or to see ourselves as others see us. Now that was my experience, but unusual as maybe the circumstances were, yet I don't believe that the actual essence of this experience as is, is in any way unique to me. No, because all the, the details might be different, they must be different, yet many of us at different times in our life have experiences that in some way bring us face to face with ourselves. And you know, sometimes that's pleasant, sometimes that's kind of nice as we realise that, you know, that's the way I too would react in that situation, that I would do that which is good, that I would do that which is right, that's reassuring. But at other times, we may see something a little bit ugly, something a bit nasty and negative and destructive. And we then see something of ourselves in that. Well, then, that's not nice. It's decidedly unpleasant to be brought face to face with yourself then. Well, I don't know if this is going to be maybe directly relevant to your life. But this morning, in this last study in the life of Jephthah, we're going to be looking at two attitudes, two reactions that I believe are fairly common in Christian circles. Now, all I ask of you is that you be at least open to see something of yourself in this. Just ask the question. So don't look at what we're going to be viewing together this morning. Don't look at it as something academic. Something theoretical. Just learning from what happened in the past. Now ask yourself, 
is there? Could there be something of me in this? So having said that, let's begin then by looking first at an unreasonable attitude. An unreasonable attitude that's found here in the reaction of the Ephraimites to the news of Jephthah's victory over the men of Ammon. There in verse 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're now going to burn your house down over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of, your, out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Now what we have to begin by, by recognizing here is that this accusation made by the Ephraimites was totally ridiculous, totally without any foundation. For to begin with, the area set free by Jephthah from the Ammonites, the area of Gilead, why this had been raided and attacked by the Ammonites on and off for around 18 years. And during all of that time, the Ephraimites had not lifted a finger to help their suffering brothers and sisters. So what right then had they to complain because after 18 years, this suffering had ended without their help? No right. No right whatsoever. And particularly not in light of the fact that as Jephthah makes clear, they had been invited to join in this final campaign but had in fact refused to help. Verse 2, Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called you, you didn't save me out of their hands. However ridiculous though the tribe of Ephraim's reaction is here, yet it is also, also sadly all too typical of them. Because as some of you might remember, at the beginning of Judges chapter 8, they did exactly the same with Gideon, complaining unjustly after the victory had been won in the same way that they'd not been invited to take part in the battle. Now you see, the root of Ephraim's problem, I believe, was that they were a selfish and a proud people. You see, because of their geography, because they possessed the land at the very heart of Israel and so largely were protected and had prospered because of that. And because of their ancestry, the fact that the last great Israelite, Joshua, had been one of their own. And because of their numbers at this time, protected as they were, they'd grown to be the most numerous of all the tribes of God's people. Because of this, Ephraim basically were full of themselves. And so their, their reaction here isn't that of a people who've been moved by pity and then feel angry because their love has been in some way snubbed. No, this is the reaction of a pompous people, a proud people, who are so sure of their own imagined rights 
but everything, that they should always be respected and then ready to wildly react, overreact to any imagined slight, but who all the time are totally blind to their own responsibilities. Now you see, the Ephraimites got away with this with Gideon because he was in the middle of a war and so to save himself being diverted, he spoke gently, he spoke softly to them. And here I think we see signs that even Jephthah, the seasoned warrior, a man who'd been a leader of a fierce band of outlaws, a man who'd been willing to put even his own daughter to death, I think we see signs that even he began by trying to speak softly and reasonably to Ephraim. Even though they threatened to burn down his house around him, to basically burn him to death, yet still Jephthah tried to persuade them that he had tried to call them, but they wouldn't come. That at the risk of his life, while they'd basked in safety and security, he'd rushed into battle against Amman. So they had absolutely nothing to complain about. But you see, Ephraim wouldn't give up. They refused to be satisfied, even by calm words and clear logic. So they kept going on and on at Jephthah and his men. They aggravate and they goad them. Goad them. They call them renegades in essence. They call them thieves and robbers, refugees, outcasts, the scum, if you like, of society. Until finally, they find that Jephthah's patience doesn't run as deeply as Gideon's. And so they receive their comeuppance. In fact, as we're going to see in a few minutes, they, they receive more than their comeuppance. But before we move into that, let's just explore a bit more deeply and apply this problem of Ephraim. So Ephraim, think of it. They were quick to defend their rights and their privileges. They were very ready to look for their share of the glory and the praise. But they had no taste for the actual battle itself. And that made them, because of that, a people who are critical and envious. A people who are always ready to criticize their brothers who were doing all the fighting and toil, but who had no real appetite themselves to go out and fight the enemy. So does that strike any kind of chord for you? Does it sound familiar? I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the Christian who's very particular, very touchy as regards their own position and reputation that they get their place. Who's always ready to criticise the work that they see going on. Who's always ready to condemn perhaps a fellow Christian and yet who themselves do next to nothing, at best very little, who more often than not is just to be found on the sidelines of the people of God, pointing out the problems and the weaknesses and others. So in this regard, there's the story of a man who once came up to the famous evangelist D.L. Moody and said to him, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you preach the gospel. You know, Moody said, I'm always willing to learn. Tell me about the method you use. Well, I don't really have one, came back the reply. Then I'll tell you what, said Moody. I like the way I do it. 
better than the way you don't do it. That, you see, that's the spirit. That is the attitude of Ephraim. An attitude that at times it seems to me can be all too common in the church of today. And it is an unreasonable attitude. It is. Because all it does is cut down, divide and destroy. And it's not what God wants of us. It's not what God wants of his people. He doesn't want us to be touchy people who in a sense stand with our arms folded, always looking for faults, always looking for an opportunity to criticize and condemn. But what God wants is he wants his people to be in there with their sleeves rolled up. He wants us to be working together. He wants us to be an example in our work and in our attitude as we labor for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. And he wants us to love where we can and encourage where we can, to encourage one another with all our hearts and so to seek to build up the body of Christ for the ministry God's called us to. That's the kind of attitude that God wants to be prevalent among his people. Not the attitude of Ephraim but the attitude that springs out of the heart and life and ministry of Jesus. But let's move on from an unreasonable attitude to look instead now at an excessive reaction. That is the reaction here of Jephthah to this unreasonable behavior and abuse that here he was on the receiving end of. Because we're told in verse 4 that Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Gilead and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim, and whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried at a town in Gilead. Now, I'm not going to labor the point here, and certainly the bare details of it are absolutely clear. We don't need to dig too deep. That is, the army of Ephraim was defeated, and after their defeat, they sought to retreat back across the Jordan, back to their homeland, fleeing for their lives. But Jephthah and his men, they secured the, the crossing place on the Jordan, and they used a very simple test to sift out the men of Ephraim. That is the test of dialect, because just as there are many different regional accents and dialects in our country. If you've lived where I live in Peterhead and Lerwick, you know that. Well, so it would seem there was also in Israel. And what we see here is the equivalent maybe of a Brobrich Moonlach Nicht test on the Scotland-England border. Although when I was actually in school in Ayrshire, our music teacher insisted there was an even stiffer test than this from the writings of Rabbi Burns, to sort out the Scots from the English, which I, as someone everyone knew at that point was actually born in England, was forced to take. And that is to say, 
a rife good woolly wacht. I didn't at that point know what it meant, but I did pass, which was great. Anyway, the test for the Ephraimites was to say shibboleth. It seemed they had a problem with the sh, and they could only say sibboleth. It was a trivial test, but it had results that certainly were not. Because as a result of failing this, 42,000 men were put to death on the banks of the Jordan. But you see what Jephthah's problem was here. Well, it would seem to me that his problem was that as a man, he had a very clear understanding of the holiness of God and of the demands that flow from that. A very clear understanding of the judgment of God on sin, but that he understood very little of God's grace, God's love, and God's forgiveness. For while it was right that he should destroy the Ammonites, who were God's enemies and the representatives of sin, and while it was certainly right that he should discipline and chastise Ephraim, God's people here who had gone off the rails. Yet should he have done as he did here? Should he have destroyed God's people? Should he have treated God's people as if they were God's enemies? I don't believe that he should have. And while the roots of Jephthah's problem were perhaps personal to him, and that is as we've already covered in past weeks, an ignorance of God's word due to a lack of teaching in his early formative years that that led him to a misunderstanding of God's nature. So although that's unique to him, I don't believe that this problem in itself is in any way unique to him. That is this problem of believers who are willing to accept and celebrate and enjoy the experience of the forgiveness of grace of God in their own lives, but who are then remarkably reluctant to share the same in their dealings with their fellow believers, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear here. Crystal clear. That in Jesus Christ, we have been given the resources that we need to and that we must share the love and forgiveness of Christ that we have received. We must share that with others. Just to pick two verses from probably the Bible's best known chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Where in that chapter we find described the kind of character of those in whom the love of Jesus Christ is alive. And well, and so there in verse 5 it says, it says, love, the love of Jesus is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Then in verse 7, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, love never gives up. Love never destroys. Love never writes off. And the Bible is also very clear that if we refuse to submit to the Holy Spirit in this area in our lives, if we, by doing this, grieve the Spirit 
and quench the Spirit in our lives by refusing to be channels of love, well, then that will have an inevitable consequence in our lives. For as we refuse to be channels of the grace of God and love and mercy and forgiveness of God, so we will then at least hinder our own experience of the grace of God and of the life of the Spirit. And we will become spiritually dry inside. We will become spiritually dead. That much at least I believe is the lesson of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. That famous parable that, that tells the story of a man who'd been forgiven so much by his king, yet who went on to refuse to forgive another man comparatively very little. And who as a result of this found himself thrown into jail to be tortured. With the final verse of Matthew 18 finishing with what I think is a chilling postscript. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. But you see, the root here, as with Jephthah, the root problem here, it's spiritual. It's always spiritual. You see, we like to concentrate when we're in situations on the circumstances, don't we? And we, we like to focus on how those circumstances have impacted me. How this has hurt me. We like to focus on what people have done and how that so hurt us and so offended us. And as we do that, well, we feel justified about how we feel. And usually it's not too hard because this is the way the human mind works. It's not too hard to find other people who will agree with us. Yes, I can see why you feel the way that you do. I can see why you find that so hard to forgive. I can see why you find it so difficult to love that person. But you see, the Bible doesn't tell us to look at other people. It doesn't tell us to be ruled by their reactions and actions and attitudes. Now, what the Bible tells Christians to do is to look to Jesus and then to seek to live with Jesus Christ as Lord. And what the Bible promises us is that the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives can enable us to forgive any heart, can tear down any barrier. And you see, if this isn't happening in our lives, then the problem is a spiritual problem. Maybe it's pride that we're holding on to. Maybe it's a lack of submission and obedience to God. Or maybe like Jeff, that's a lack of understanding about how God actually wants his people to live. It could be something tied up that's deep-rooted within us that's our problem. Something we maybe need help with to get through it, prayer and wise counsel. But for whatever reason, if this is where we are, then the love of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, is not working its way out in our lives in the way that it should. And that needs dealt with. That needs urgently dealt with. We don't, in a sense, whether we see anything of ourselves in the unreasonable attitude of Ephraim or the excessive reaction of Jephthah. In a sense, although that is important, yet it's actually not of first importance. 
What is of first importance? What really matters? And why this matters? Is that as people look at us, that as they look at this fellowship, as they look at this church, and the way that we live together, what really matters is that they see more of Jesus. That by the way we behave, by the way we interact, that they see more of his love, more of his mercy, more of his forgiveness, that they see more of his grace. That's why all this matters. So I say, let's deal with anything in our lives, anything that's there in our hearts, any lingering resentment, any lack of love, any grudge that we're holding. Let's deal with anything that might block the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. So that as people look at us, they might in fact see more of him. Let's come and pray. Father, we we just want to live in obedience to your word. We know it's not always easy. We know that it challenges just the the hearts that we have as men and women, because we do tend to be proud. We do tend to to hold resentment. We do tend to think of what people have done for us rather than think of what you've given for us. We tend to focus on how difficult it is rather than all that you've provided to enable. Oh Lord, help us to come to you, to seek you, to be filled by your spirit and your love as people look at us they might see more of the love of the grace of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ we pray this now in Jesus name Amen